The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. It's great to spend this moment with you as we come before God's holy word. We are going to continue through our study in the book of Revelation, and this morning we're looking at the first four trumpets in Revelation chapter 8. So we'll be in Revelation 8, 6 to 13. Again, that's Revelation 8, 6 to 13. Let's hear the word of our Lord. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the tr other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. This is the word of God. We spent some time with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this was a, a difficult week, a chaotic week in so many ways. And uh, we come here now to set aside this time uh, to worship you in reverence, in fear, in joy, at your love for us through Christ and your salvation that he's given us. And we come to pour out our hearts before you, Lord. Now we want to listen to you speak. And so I pray for this moment, Father, that your Holy Spirit would fill us. Please help me to teach this faithfully, clearly, and help each one of us who hear, Lord, that your word would have its attended effect in our minds, in our hearts, as we come to you. Help us to see Jesus, to turn to him, to be like him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. This week was a hard week in many ways, wasn't it? It was hard for our nation, hard for our hearts. I wonder what you were feeling as you took in the reality of those abominable, inexcusable events at the Capitol building this week. Discouragement, disappointment, and probably some anger. There's a lot of anger in our country right now. There's a lot of things to be angry about. We know all about the pandemic with its death, loss of freedom, 
the increased poverty it's bringing for so many across our nation and the world. Then, of course, there's the political. I would imagine there's some deep critique you would want to offer the political right, the political left. I'm sure there's a lot of things you would want to say about the events of the last week and month. And I'll admit, even this morning, I have a couple of pages of sermon sitting on the cutting room floor. But for now, this morning, as we come setting aside this time for reverent worship before God's word, we remember that our desire to stand in judgment presupposes a transcendent law under which we all must stand. It presupposes a transcendent lawgiver to whom we are each accountable. And we remember if we, with our limited, sometimes foolish, often selfish, too often hypocritical senses of justice, if we are feeling angry, what about him? What about him as he sees the rebellion of this world in our nation, the rebellion perhaps even in our hearts? So we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation this morning, and we come to a section of Scripture that is notoriously hard to understand. The first four trumpets in Revelation 8. And not only is this text hard to understand, it forces us to deal with hard ideas. For instance, the wrath of God. You know, it seems like our culture wants to assume that if there's a God, it's kind of his job to forgive. And he's only really known for a soft kind of universally accepting love. As we see in this text and many others, I'm afraid that's not the real living God of the Bible. You know, even if we're not exactly sure what these trumpets are about, they don't exactly sound like a good time, do they? But we know, we see that they are from God, and they are an expression of his wrath. So we wonder, we ask, and we should, as we come to this text, what does it mean? What does it teach us about our times? What does this text teach us about God and how we should respond to him? So I think we do have a hard text meant to help us in hard times this morning. And I pray that this text and his truth will draw us closer to the Lord Jesus in humility, to greater trust in him and more faithfulness to him in these hard times. So we are continuing to work through Revelation. We remember this book. It's a collection of visions from God to the apostle John, and they're meant to encourage God's people to endure faithfully through this time of tribulation. The core message of the book is that Jesus is king. He reigns and he wins, and so will his people in the end. So because of that reality, in this age of difficulty and tribulation, we are to, we can follow him faithfully no matter the cost, knowing he is worth it. 
We've seen, haven't we, that Revelation is framed by these series of sevens. So in chapter one, we had a vision of Jesus followed by these seven letters to seven churches. Then uh, chapters four to five, there's this vision of the throne room of God uh, followed by the scroll with seven seals. Then uh, in chapter eight, there's this vision of the prayers before God's altar. We saw that last week. And then the seventh seal is open to reveal seven trumpets. This morning, we're going to consider the first four of those trumpets. So three questions just to have in your mind as we work through these. Number one, how are we supposed to understand these trumpets? And how might they be um, blowing or active or heard today? Number two, what do these trumpets show about God? And number three, as we learn from the trumpets and what they teach about God, what does it show us about how we should respond to him? So understanding the trumpets, learning about God, considering our response. As we dive in, we should admit and recognize genuine, wonderful Christians have had very different perspectives on how to interpret these trumpets. Uh, Some have thought they're events that have already taken place in the past, The most popular view probably today is that these are more literal events that are yet to occur in the future. And just by the way, how you understand these trumpets in Revelation chapter 8 is not our litmus test of whether or not you are a faithful Christian. Um, I'm happy to admit that if you disagree with me on the details of my take in this chapter, that is okay. Um, However, I can only teach it the way I see it. Hopefully, my points will make sense, and we can land on the main ideas together. Um, So I think we ought to interpret these trumpets symbolically. And let me give give you a few reasons why. Number one is the the use of the word like in this text. An example is Revelation 8.8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire. That, to me, sounds like an intended lack of precision, that makes the text seem uh, symbolic. Another reason would be the use of the idea of one-third. You see that amazingly 14 times in these verses, one-third. And we remember that the usage of numbers in Revelation is often symbolic. It seems so here. And then uh, the kicker for me, uh, making me confident that this is symbolic, is that there's a talking eagle. So that's probably symbolic. But haven't we seen this uh, in the book as as a whole? I mean, we've learned, I think, that it's best to read Revelation biblically and symbolically. I think John told us this in chapter 1, that much of Revelation would be um, truth communicated through symbol. And we've seen this on nearly every page. Jesus is a lion and a lamb. Our prayers are incense. The churches are lampstands, etc., But we've realized, and we need to remember, these aren't just symbols coming out of nowhere. These are symbols directly taken from the Old Testament, intended to teach us the deep meaning of our lives in these times. And so we've got to read Revelation symbolically and biblically. We've got to go back to see how these ideas are used in the Old Testament so that we can understand what John is doing with them in Revelation. So if these trumpets are symbolic, we then ask, what do they symbolize? What do they mean? Before we get into the nitty-gritty details, let's try to grab a bigger picture look of these trumpets in these few verses. 
number one, from the larger context, we see these trumpets are judgments of wrath from God on a world that needs to repent. These trumpets signify judgments, judgments of wrath from God on a world that needs to repent. Uh, you see this in Revelation 8.13, the eagles crying out, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Woe is a signification on deserved judgment coming. And why is the judgment coming? You see the answer to that in Revelation 9.20, Revelation 9.20, there we see the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or their idolatries. So these trumpets are judgments of wrath from God on a world that needs to repent. Secondly, we see these judgments are limited in scope. Uh, back to that idea of one-third. In six verses, that phrase one-third is mentioned 14 times that is a lot of repetition. And to me, that's a strong indicator that the effects of these trumpets, whatever they mean, those effects are limited. So for instance, these judgments are not hitting everyone at the same time or in the same way. There's a limitation to them. Third, uh, something to see about these trumpets in the big picture, very interesting to me, these judgments have obvious and stark similarities to God's plagues on Egypt as found in the story of the Exodus. I'm sure you saw it there, heard it as we read the text. There's hail and fire, harvest loss, water turning to blood, darkness in the land. You know, as you keep reading in Revelation <clears throat> by chapter 15, God's people are actually singing the song of Moses. So really there's a strong and obvious thematic connection that we need to pursue a little between the themes of the Exodus and this context in Revelation. I, I wonder, do you remember that story of the Exodus? Um, through Abraham, God promised that he would make a people and that from that people would come salvation for the world. If we were to look back into Genesis 15, we'd remember that God told Abraham that his descendants would suffer injustice from a powerful nation and be rescued on the way to the promised land. As we continue reading in the book of Exodus, we see Abraham's descendants become slaves in Egypt. Uh, in Exodus 3, we hear of God's people in their distress, in their distress, crying out to God. And God hears their prayers, comes to deliver them according to his promise. Let's look at Exodus 3, Exodus 3, 7 to 8. Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. As you continue reading into Exodus 9 and following, you see that God's deliverance for his people includes these warnings in limited judgments on the nation of Egypt and a hard-hearted Pharaoh who will not repent. It's, always, it's almost amazing, isn't it, to read that story. Despite plague after plague and warning after warning, Pharaoh will not repent. 
So as we, rem- as we remember that story in Exodus, isn't it kind of amazing how similar the themes are to what we've seen in Revelation? Revelation 1, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved to belong to God's people. Jesus is the salvation that came through Abraham and his descendants. But just as God told Abraham that his descendants would suffer in Egypt, so we have been told in Revelation, we will suffer tribulation in this world. And just as God's people prayed to be delivered from Egypt, in Revelation 6, we have a picture of God's people crying out for deliverance, for rescue. And just as God heard in Exodus, in Revelation 8, God hears and begins to answer in part with limited judgment on the unrepentant. And it's all an aspect of his deliverance of his people, bringing us to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. These themes are so important, and they help us to conclude important things regarding these trumpets. We see that these trumpets are limited judgments of warning to an unrepentant world, and they serve as part of God's delivering of his praying people as he takes them from captivity to salvation in the promised land. So let's listen now in more detail to the trumpets. We hear about the first trumpet in verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet. There followed hail and fire mixed with blood. These were thrown on the earth. third of the earth was burned up. third of the trees were burned up. All the green grass was burned up. Well, what are we supposed to do with this? Is this something we're supposed to take literally? Again, I don't think so. The first trumpet sounds very much like the plague we see in Exodus chapter 9. Let's listen to Exodus 9, 22 and following. In Exodus 9, 22, it reads, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. The story continues, the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never had been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field. But in verse 31, we see the hail ruined the flax and the barley, but not the wheat. So the judgment was limited. Do you see the similarities? Hail, fire, Loss of harvest, and yet it's limited. That's why I'd conclude that this first trumpet signifies limited expressions in our world of economic shortage and famine. And if you think that's true, just ponder for a moment. Do you hear echoes of that trumpet in our world today? Economic shortage. Famine, not everywhere, not all to everyone, not in every place, but in some places. What are those things saying to us? That takes us to the second trumpet. You read about that in verses 8 to 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Was it hard to even imagine taking literally a slew of images pressed together, something like a mountain on fire, 
water turning to blood, fish dying, ships destroyed, but it's not totally a mountain. It's like a mountain. What are we supposed to do with this? Well, again, looking to the Old Testament is the key. In the Old Testament, mountains often symbolize nations, kingdoms, or powers. Here's one example, Jeremiah 51, 24. That reads, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Now listen to verse 25. God says, behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord. So what's the mountain in context here? It's a kingdom, an unrepentant kingdom that's doing evil, and God's judgment is going to come on that kingdom, fire. It's going to come undone. You're remembering the story of the Exodus as Moses turned um, the water to blood. That was part of judgment on the nation of Egypt, the, the mountain, if you will, of Egypt. So you see kingdoms failing, cracking, coming undone. And as a result, you see fish dying, ships destroyed. What's that all about? Well, to the original audience of Revelation, fishing industry, shipping was a major aspect of that economy. And so you see as kingdoms are failing, um, economies are destabilized, resources are diminished. You hear of the same theme again in Revelation 18. Look to Revelation 18, 15, uh, and we'll look at 19 as well. In Revelation 18, 15 to 19, you see mourners um, grieving the fall of Babylon, which represents here kind of the world systems in rebellion to God. This is what they say, Revelation 18, 15. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. You see what they're mourning in part, verse 19. They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. Their concern is a loss of wealth as this kingdom fails falls. Wealth is lost and resources are diminished. That's what I think the second trumpet signifies. Limited expressions of kingdoms failing, economic resources diminishing. As we ponder that, again, I wonder, can you hear echoes of that trumpet blowing anywhere today? Kingdoms cracking on fire economic resources diminishing. Not everywhere, not all the time, not, not in the same way in every place to every person, but a lot of places. The third trumpet, we see that in verses 10 to 11. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Again, this is another one that's hard to imagine happening literally, where a, a literal star could fall and only hit a third of the water, but the, it makes the water bitter. You can still drink it. It's, it's hard to see it that way. And I don't think we should. Again, I think this is symbolic. Revelation will often use stars symbolically. Stars can be 
angels, even fallen angels. And we see this star has a name. The name of the star is Wormwood. What does that mean? Well, again, the Old Testament guides us. Let's ponder this theme of Wormwood from a couple of texts. Look at Lamentations 3, 15 to 17. Lamentations is one of the darkest books in the Bible. It is just grieving the result of uh, enduring God's judgment on the land. This is what the author says in Lamentations 3.15. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Now, the author here, um, he trusts God, and he's going to be able to say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. But right here, he's, he's uh, expressing wormwood. To forget what happiness is, it's a deep bitterness of soul. Another angle on this idea from the prophet Amos Look at Amos chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. Uh, this passage reads, For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Again, there's judgment here. Verse 12, Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? The answer is no, obviously not. That's awful. That would bring destruction. That would bring ruin. Why would you do that? But look what the prophet says here. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Justice, sources of justice, leaders who lead in justice are supposed to bring life to enable human thriving. And when justice, systems of justice, leaders are corrupted, the result is wormwood. It's bitterness. It's brokenness. And so in Revelation, even the water is poisoned and it becomes a bitterness that kills somehow. And so I think this trumpet signifies, again, a limited expression of the bitter despair people experience as sources of life come apart. Sources of life are corrupted, poisoned, or come undone. If you take this trumpet like that, can you hear that trumpet blowing anywhere? Can you see the echoes of bitter despair? That takes us to the fourth trumpet. Verses 12 to, I guess just verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Uh, this may be the strangest one of all to imagine. It's hard to, hard to think of how well, these thirds could work um, in these scenarios. But again, I think it can make sense. If you read this symbolically, you read it biblically, Let's remember again the plague, one of the plagues uh, on Egypt during the Exodus. This is Exodus 10, verse 21 and 23. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Verse 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. So you see, there's division between those who belonged to God and those who didn't. And the darkness could be felt um, that landed on the Egyptians while God's people were spared. It gives us an idea of what this darkness could mean. Another example is in the prophet Amos. Uh, this is God's response to that king's, that Israelite king's rampant idolatry and his influence on the nation. Amos 8, 9. On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. Well, Amos shows us that this idea is not always literal. There's nothing that happened in that story of the exile that made the sun go down at noon. But you see the idea, feasts turned into mourning. Songs into lamentation. The things that should be bringing pleasure become dark. The day itself is dark. The feasts are mourning due to the judgment of God against our idolatry and our rebellion. So put all together, I think the fourth trumpet signifies, again, a limited expression. It's not hitting everyone in the same way all the time, but it's a limited expression of the dark hopelessness that comes in being separated from God. It's a limited expression of the dark hopelessness that comes in being separated from God. So, If that's what these trumpets signify, we could then ask, when do these trumpets blow? Is it something that's not occurring now at all, we're waiting for? I don't think so. I think they're happening now. I think the way these trumpets function in Revelation is, is that it's another look at this age of tribulation between Jesus' ascension and his return. Uh, and where the seals being opened, we're look at this age from the perspective of God's people and how God saves us and keeps us and refines us through these things. These trumpets are looking at the same time again from the picture of those who don't trust Christ and seeing how it's um, moments that express God's wrath and his judgment in the midst of our lack of repentance. So they're limited. They're not everywhere in full measure all the time, but they're horribly real and painful, and they're meant to give a message. So uh, we've been thinking about what these trumpets can signify. Uh, kingdoms coming undone, um, economic distress, famine, uh, bitterness of soul, um, hopelessness. I think we see that in the world around us. These things are meant to give a message. And so we ask, what do we learn about God? We begin to see this in this strange eagle in Revelation 8, 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth 
and the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Well, we could wonder, um, why an eagle? What what does this symbol mean? As always, the Old Testament helps again. Look at Jeremiah 4, 12 to 14. God says through the prophet, Now it is I who speak in judgment upon them. Behold, he comes like clouds, his chariots like the whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are ruined. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. How long shall your wicked thoughts lodge within you? So judgment is coming like an eagle. It's coming on those whose hearts are evil, whose wicked thoughts lodge within them. What does it mean that judgment comes like an eagle? Well, the prey never sees the eagle coming until it's too late. The eagle swoops in from above at great speed. You never know it's there until it's too late. And yet this eagle is different. There's never been an eagle like this one. He shouts at you, and he warns you ahead of time. On his way down, he warns you, saying, you need to repent all the way into your heart. And here's something so important that we learn about God. In God's wrath, God warns. He warns. In God's wrath, he warns. Now, I know uh, you and I don't usually like to be warned. Can you remember the last time you were warned? Um, kind of get defensive when we're warned. Um, it uh, kind of comes against our pride when we're warned. But I wonder if you could ever think of a time when you warned someone and you did it for their good because they were in danger and you cared. Well, God wouldn't have to warn, but here he warns, and here's the reality of which he's warning, and we just remember such important basics. We've each sinned against God. We've bought the lie that God isn't good, that his word is not true. We've been passionate in believing that it would be better to replace him with other things. This is what the Bible means by idolatry, to where we are inclined against God, and therefore we devote ourselves to things that aren't God and serve them with our minds, our hearts, and our lives. And this sin, this idolatry, is evil and the source of every other evil. We express our idolatry, don't we? By twisting and breaking God's law, we don't love him with our whole hearts according to his word. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves according to his word. And God's always been honest from the beginning. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. We deserve his wrath. Ultimately, there will be the penalty of eternal wrath when Jesus returns. But before then, we have these limited expressions of wrath warning us of the ultimate wrath to come, calling us to repent. Our God is good and holy, so he does have just wrath, and our God is merciful so that he warns. Friends, these trumpets, they are expressions of wrath on a rebellious world, but they are also a message to repent. Jesus Jesus talked like this in Luke 13. Look at what Jesus said in Luke 13, 1 to 5. 
Luke 13, 1, there was some president at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse four, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Pilate was a tyrant and he killed some some Jews and and Jesus is saying, uh, are they worse than everybody else because they got killed and, and, and you didn't? And the answer is no. And yet, what's the message? We all need to repent. Or there was that tragedy where the tower fell and, and some people died. And Jesus says, do you think they were worse because they were in the tower and you weren't? No. But there's a message there. Unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. And so we see from these trumpets and these expression of these limited judgments. One person isn't necessarily worse than anyone else because they experienced it explicitly and others didn't. But in the greater context of this suffering in this broken world, it's a warning to all of us in our shared humanity that each one of us needs to repent. And as these things of the world fall apart, we are shown very painfully how empty our idolatry is is. And we put our hopes in these things that don't hold, that won't last, that can't satisfy, that aren't good enough. We need to turn from those things and trust ourselves to God. You know, our, our own anger at so much of what is happening shows us that we know that in some way justice needs to come and wrath is deserved. How many of our own fingers point back at us as we point those fingers out? And will we listen to what God is saying to everyone? The wrath, it's, it's come in limited measure, but fullness is coming soon. So we need to repent. What do we learn about God? He's holy. He has wrath, but in his wrath, he warns. He warns. So what should be then our response to this hard text for hard times? We remember the Exodus one more time. You remember the the major plague God brought on Egypt um, was the death of of the firstborn. And what I want to point out here is you remember when that plague of God's justice began to come, Israel was not exempt on their own. They couldn't just say, hey, those Egyptians, they're bad. We Israelites, we're good. Oh, no, they they weren't exempt at all. Um, In fact, on their own, they would be worthy of the same judgment. It's a great warning to us in our anger to be wary of pride and self-righteousness. Do you remember the story? Something, Something had to be done 
to save God's people from his wrath. And we remember the Passover lamb. The, the lamb was to be killed in this strange sign where you'd put the blood of the lamb over the door of your house, and it signified um, your own guilt, and that you deserved to face God's wrath, and yet something else took the punishment and the penalty in your place. And the sign of that blood, that something else had died in your stead, that was your salvation who would set you free. Friends, did you see, do you remember who it is opening these seals in Revelation, who it is that's over these trumpets in Revelation, the, the one who sends the eagle who gives warning? Remember Revelation 8, verse 1. Who's in control here? When the Lamb opened the seventh seal. The Lamb. Who's the Lamb? It's Jesus. Why is he called the Lamb? Because he is the way of repentance. He is the true Exodus. He's the cure to idolatry. He's the escape out from under the wrath of a holy God. Jesus is called the Lamb because he lived a perfect life of righteous obedience. He's called the Lamb because he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And you remember as you read the story of him on the cross in the Gospel of Matthew, when he died, darkness fell in the middle of the day. The judgment of God fell on him instead of on his people. Jesus rose from the dead, now reigns, and will one day return to judge and renew the world in fullness, and God's people will certainly be delivered, will be taken to the promised land of a new heavens and a new earth. So how do we respond to the reality of this text? We repent again. We repent by trusting our life to him. Um, as we repent, we remember God's promise. For those who trust in Christ, we're forgiven because the wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of us on the cross. We're, we're reminded of the promise that for those who trust in Christ, we've been made right with God. We have Jesus' righteousness given to us as a gift, received by faith in him. We remember God's promise that he will progressively transform us to be like Christ and to live for him now in this world. So if you're not a Christian, the experience of this world and this text are calling you to repent and turn from your idols and trust Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, it's a call to keep repenting, to root out remaining idolatry in our hearts to follow Jesus according to his word, no matter the cost, because he's worth it. So how do we respond? We want to look to Jesus and humble ourselves. Search out your heart. Ponder, the psalm says, in your bed, your anger, how you're processing it. Be most concerned with your own sin. Number two, look to Jesus and grow in personal holiness. We need to stand out in these times to be different in our love, in our character, in our service. 
Number three, let's look to Jesus and speak the truth in love. In times of wormwood and despair, we have the gospel and the promises of the love of God through Jesus Christ. Let's live that consistently. Let's share it. And finally, we can look to Jesus and hope in God's justice. The themes of the Exodus teach us this world is not our home. It reminds us God sees all the evil and vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. Trusting in that enables us to forgive, to love our enemies. Now, in a way, we are in Egypt, but God will act. And when Jesus comes, we'll be delivered, taken to the promised land. So this is a hard text for hard times, but it draws us to remember that our Savior went to a hard cross for us. He rose from the dead. He's overcome the world. He's overcome sin and death, removed God's wrath for all those who trust in him. He's king now. He reigns. He wins. In the midst of hard times, let's look to him. Our Father, we thank you for this word. I pray, Lord, that... um, whatever is true and good and right uh, that I've said this morning would stick in our minds and our hearts. And as we process ourselves in these hard times, that we would run in repentance to you, that we would look to you, Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who saves us, who reigns for us, and that we would live in the light of your kingship in our minds, our hearts, our relationships, According to your word, no matter the cost for your glory, for you are worth it. You will deliver us. You will save. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.